Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is Ian Leslie. Ian is the author uh, of a new book called Conflicted, How Pro Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes, which means uh, he's the guy that knows how to argue. So, Ian, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So, do you consider yourself to be really argumentative? No, not particularly. Um, in fact, I would say I'm, I'm probably on the conflict-averse side of things. But that's kind of why I got interested in it. I was looking around me and seeing uh, so many bad arguments, perhaps because I spend too much time on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but if you just look around at the public discourse, you know, you're going to come across a lot of very futile um, engagements that, that, that just seem to make everyone dumber um, rather than smarter. Um, and so I started thinking... Maybe there's a book in, in how to kind of have our differences out without getting into arguments. But then the more I thought about it and the more I researched and, and, and read about this, the more I thought, actually, that's almost the opposite of the problem. The real problem is that we are, we, we're like, well, we're, we're like too, too much like me, actually. We're actually too conflict averse, generally. And seeing all these to toxic arguments, um, the public ones that happen on social media, uh, actually puts us off more. Um, and when you don't, have arguments when you don't have productive arguments productive disagreements you actually lose out on a whole amount of incredibly important benefits so it it, it makes you a little bit dimmer makes you less creative makes you less imaginative and so the the mission of the book then really became ah okay so how do we get people to argue more but and but in a productive way um rather than just avoid it because we find it a little bit too stressful when we're arguing, um, especially if we're really passionate about it, how often do you think it's because we feel that way about that particular issue? And how much is it that there's some other thing in our life that is motivating our position? And if so, are people kind of generally aware of why they're arguing what they're arguing for? Or does it kind of take a more introspection than people usually put into it? Yes, yeah, good question. I, I think they can learn to become more aware of, of what's going on, right? So, so the, the very simple model of disagreement and really co communication generally to bear in mind when you talk to the psychologists who, who study this kind of thing, they'll, they'll say, look, in every tense argument, there's, there's actually two conversations going on. There's the one that's kind of above ground, the thing that we are talking about, which is the content. Of, of the disagreement, right? So we're arguing about what decision to take at this meeting, um, or, or perhaps a you know a, a couple is arguing about who who's, who's who should take the trash out, um, and then but going on underneath that content level is the relationship level of of the of the argument, which is actually unarticulated. Um, it's not in the words. Um, it's picked up in in lots of different ways, lots of different subtle signals, and that conversation is about what do we think about each other. Do you, are you giving me enough respect in this conversation? Do you do you like me? Um, do we trust each other? And the the one of the big lessons of, of of the book is you have to kind of you have to settle at that relationship level. You have to find a way of reaching concord at that relationship level before you can get into a really vigorous content conversation. Because if that relationship level is is unstable, it's just going to disrupt your content 
argument and it's going to go off the rails or, or you know, somebody's going to walk out of the room or it's just going to be completely content free because nobody wants to to engage in it. So actually managing that part is is the thing you need to do first. So, so right. So if, if, if I'm arguing with someone and that I fundamentally think, oh, they're doing this because they, you know, have these unfair opinions about me or they're doing this because they're trying to get this for themselves or whatever it is, then it's hard for me to even hear what they're actually saying because I'm so busy preparing my argument in my head um, as to why they're wrong. Um, so, so who are the people that we can argue with where we can really fully understand their motivations, accept them, uh, and then argue something on the merits? Well, I, I think you you put it really well, and I, but I think you, you've got to imagine that the if, if the other person seems like they're arguing in bad faith or maybe they're being um, irrational or uh, aggressive, um, that it may be because of the reason you, you just said, right? Maybe they're just like assholes, right? <laughs> There's not much you can do about it. However, a lot of the time they're behaving like that because they feel insecure, um, and threatened in some way, uh, or they feel like you're trying to p- coerce them subtly or otherwise, or push them around, and therefore they're, they're they're pushing back. So that's what's happening at the relationship level, right? Often that's that's kind of the unspoken part of the conversation. So, and if you think there's a chance that you can bring them round, you should try and do it. So, uh, uh, the, some of the sort of techniques and suggestions I use in the book are about how can I make the other person feel more secure in this conversation, right? If it takes a little bit of um, reassurance, uh, maybe even a little bit of flattery, if I need to show them where we agree on something before we get to the disagreement, you can try all these things. And you might be able to find that you can settle that relationship level and then you can get into the, the, into the content disagreement and you can be, you know, it can be much more interesting. How do you do that when uh, emotions are heated and you're having an argument over not you know, who should have been the, the MVP in the National League, but, you know, s- something really difficult. Uh, how do you have the presence of mind to step back and think about everything you just said? Uh, well, you know, thinking about it before you go into the argument, <laughs> reading books like this, you know, th- ha- having some sort of mental map of how an argument can go right and how it can go wrong is 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 always going to help. Um, yeah. Thinking about what you're trying to accomplish in this conversation, right? So when you get the urge to basically burn this 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 conversation, you know, to, to humiliate the other person, think have a little bit of your brain that says, okay, you can do this if that's really what you want to do, go for it. But what are you trying to accomplish by by getting angry or sarcastic or abusive, whatever it is? Um, is it something worthwhile? If not, step away or, or try a different try a different mode. Right. And also, I would imagine who you're arguing with, because sometimes when my wife and I argue, you know, one part of me is saying, I just want to win this argument no matter what. But then, you know, I have to live with the consequences of it when we're done. Right. And, and you know, viewing it in the way that you described long term is always sort of the better option. Um, but there are times where I'm able to sort of see that and, and modulate. And there are times where I just feel so strongly or emotionally or whatever else that, you know, I just go for the kill. Um, it, do yeah. most people have that problem or am I just particularly defective? Everyone has that problem. Um, and, but I wouldn't say it's completely like, it's not just a problem. Like wh- one of the things I want to say in the book is, uh, I do say in the book is, um, I'm not suggesting that we take the emotion out of argument and disagreement, right? So so I, I think there was kind of guides to how to disagree well, which to me seem a little bit too much like 
uh, they're aspiring to some sort of Oxford seminar, you know, in moral philosophy, where everybody's super rational and and we put all our feelings aside and we just talk about kind of facts and so on. I don't, for one, I don't think that's realistic. Um, and number two, actually, I think your emotions make you smarter, right? Your emotions help you think. Um, they, they, they really kind of motivate you to think harder about, about what you're saying if you're doing it in the right way. So, um, no, it's not unusual, but I think it has to be controlled. And you, I think you have to have a little bit of your brain on, like, what's the objective of this conversation? And, and do we share a goal here? Even if we're going at each other really hard, is there some sort of higher goal that we're both trying to achieve, whether it's uh, a, a, an insight that we're trying to get to or the, or, or the truth or, you know, some sort of uh, information. So you, you mentioned in the book, and you also mentioned it a few minutes ago, that most people actually are conflict averse and, and try to avoid arguments. And yet there are these entire big industries, social media, cable TV, talk radio, that are effectively forms of entertainment to watch people we don't know, or some of the people we do know, uh, arguing with each other. How do you kind of think about this cognitive distance between the kind of activity we don't like to engage in, but then our sort of pension for watching others do it. Well, you know what? I, I think paradoxically, um, those, those kind of um, that, those spats, those those kind of really hot, um, overheated, outrage fueled arguments are just the flip side of um, avoiding any conflict whatsoever. They're actually just another form of, of, of avoidance of, of real engaged argument. Um, they're actually kind of cowardly avoidance of it, right? Um, actually disagreeing with somebody and, and in a kind of engaged way, which means in, to, to some extent you're kind of listening to what they have to say and thinking about what you're saying in response, right? And it's very, in a very basic sense, is uncomfortable. Um, and it's not just uncomfortable because you feel threatened. It's, it's uncomfortable because you're having to rethink your own premises. And, and we don't like that, right? We, we like, we take comfort in certainty and, and we are basically aversive to any kind of thought whatsoever most of the time, you know. Um, and in a kind of um, zero-sum uh, outrage fueled argument, you're not really having to, to think very much. You, 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 all you're trying to do is, is win, right? You, you, you're just engaged in, in a battle. And in a way that, again, I, you know, that's a kind of like way out of, of uh, actual disagreement. So you talk in the book about how police officers are trying to de-escalate disputes. And yet, you know, we keep seeing examples uh, where uh, there's some form of, of police brutality, like George Floyd or, or whatever else. Um, what happens in that moment? Is that the police officers were improperly trained? Is that, that these are just some bad apples? Is it that some point, you know, the, the fear involved just overtakes everything else? Like, how, how should they be doing it differently? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as you know, I, I spent some time with um, uh, officers from the Memphis Police Department, which is a very forward-thinking police department, um, and as they were going undergoing de-escalation training, um, which is run by by former cops, um, very, very smart guys, um, who would be more appalled and outraged at some of the abuses that, that we've seen recently than, than perhaps anyone else, right? It's, it just absolutely appalls them because they, they know what it does to the reputation of, of the police. And, and also they think it's utterly stupid, right? <laughs> and, and what they would say, I think, to this is the police are not trained in how to communicate Right. Police are trained to to, you know, defend themselves, to, 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 to patrol the streets. There's a great emphasis on on kind of physical domination. Um, but they're given very little tips on how to communicate. And communication just prevents lots of these situations from getting into a hot place, uh, you know, in the first place. So actually, 
my guys did not even like the term de-escalation because they're like, it shouldn't be escalated in the first place. 90% of these things can be headed off before you get there. So there's kind of pre-escalation going on. Um, and that means just, uh, well, it means lots of different things, but it means kind of slowing the conversation down a bit, just assessing what's going on, doing some of what I've been talking about earlier, actually, which is asking yourself, why is this person on the street behaving so weirdly and irrationally and aggressively? Can I calm them down? Rather than just escalating it, can I, can I say, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it, you know. Um, many of these things which then, res- you know, move into violent situations or potential violence um, can be, you know, headed off before they get close to that if you're an intelligent communicator and listener. So I'm going to wave my magic wand and make you the mayor of New York City. Congratulations. I always knew you, you could do it. <laughs> um, and, and the first charge I'm going to give you, though, is you've got to figure out how to take all the work that you've done and what you saw in Memphis and apply it to the New York Police Department, the NYPD, and you, know, you have to balance these two things. You know, clearly, um, you want less conflict between police and citizens and, and a greater feeling of respect uh, by the population. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want more crime, right? Uh, and you need, to, you need to not tolerate higher crime as a cost of doing business. So given those what feel sometimes like competing priorities, um, what would you do? Well, I think the, the, the point is not to think about them as, as competing priorities, yeah. Um, because really, really good policing is is absolutely based on trust, um, and 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 trust comes from good, uh, respectful communication, and that can that that kind of is built up over years in day to day small interactions. Um, so the, the the cops that that I was with put a great emphasis on. Um, on very small things, you know, on 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 just uh, you know saying hello to people, giving them a little bit of respect, even when you're arresting someone, you know, being very careful not to humiliate people, um, because as they would say, you know, I, I, they would say to me, you know, I've seen cops arrest people and and absolutely humiliate them verbally or or, or physically in the moment, and I stand there and I think this is the most stupid thing, or I try and stop them, but you know, it's a really dumb thing to do. Um, it's going to make your job more difficult and it's also going to rebound on you or your colleagues at some po- future point. That person might come out of prison a couple of years down the line and, and try and kill one of your colleagues. Um, so, you know, treating people with respect and, and building trust is not kind of an alternative to 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 uh, reducing crime. It's an, it's an absolute prerequisite of it. So makes makes sense and then what i will i will if assuming you don't win the primary in a few weeks uh i'll pass <laughs> I, I think i've got you mayor but I, I think you'll win i mean who would yeah um, so a couple of things in the book that were just really interesting that i wanted to dig in on one is a study that you cite that shows that 65 percent of startups fail because of co-founder conflict so i'm a venture capitalist and, and early stage so i'm meeting with companies it's usually their first getting going and, you know, they're always so passionate about their idea and, and their teamwork and everything else. And that's, you know, we invest because it looks like this is a great combination of people. And then you're right. Sometimes it, it doesn't work. And sometimes that's because the uh, co-founders couldn't get along. It, if you have people who have commonality of a mission um, and at least at the beginning how they want to go about it, why does it go bad so much? Well, can go bad for, for a number of reasons, as you know. But w- one of the problems is that uh, founders don't always get into the habit of having their disagreements out openly. Um, I spoke to a founder called Gary Tan, who's, who's written and, and spoken very eloquently about this. Sure. Um, 
and and you know in his kind of first startup which got quite successful quite quickly um he said things are going really well and we we're both quite conflict averse we, we never kind of had to have our arguments out um but then when things started to go really badly which they can do quite quickly as you know um, yes. invariably they were very bad right yes. right and we had no fallback um because we didn't know we had disagreement about the the direction of the company but we just didn't didn't know in our bones how to have it out so we just avoided it we just stopped talking to each other um and in the process you know failed the people that were working for us and 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 helped the you know the company to go south effectively um and the big lesson he took from that was you know you got to get into the habit of 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 having arguments and, and disagreements openly um and just speaking to other founders they'll you know who have got this who who, who have learned this they'll say you know i try to model open disagreement with my my co-founders so that the rest of the team and the rest of the company can see you can argue about things and not you know personally fall out right it's it's encouraged um and it's creating that culture where disagreement is not a seen as a slight or a disruptive act but actually a sign of respect and actually a sign of of passion for for the company it's an incredibly important thing to do i think yeah it, it, it's it's absolutely right you know one of the things that we we always try to figure out why the venture funds that do fail why they failed and oftentimes it's because the investing decision making process becomes based on keeping score and you didn't support me in this previous deal so i'm going to kill this deal that you're working on or you know, I don't love your idea, but you were helpful to me before, so I'm going to green light and vote for your deal. And and when you're making investment decisions that way, it never works, right? Because you're making them for the wrong reasons, which really means that it's far better to have conflict and arguments on the front end. Um, and yet it, it, that feels almost illogical to people. How do you change the norms around arguing so that people accept that, that arguing actually can be extremely productive and helpful? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, what I was talking about, which is modeling it, um, showing people that that uh, you're not afraid to get into open disagreements with with uh, you know, other senior people in the organization, but also um, making sure that when junior people speak up and, and you, maybe you have to encourage them to do this and disagree with you, that they are rewarded for it, you know, that they, that they then get a sign from you and the rest of the people see this. That it's good. It's good that you challenged me because you've actually made me think a lot harder about this. Um, may, I haven't changed my mind completely. May, maybe I've changed it a little bit, but you know what? You've made me think this through. Um, th- there's also just, uh, you know, setting explicit rules. You know, uh, don't underestimate the value of, of you know, just saying to everybody that joins, this is how we do disagreement. We believe in open, thoughtful, thoughtful but direct disagreement. Um, Any time that the, the norms around disagreement are not set then people tend to uh, avoid it um, or or feel very kind of uncomfortable and, and, and stressful when they do it. Uh, so setting the norms both explicitly and explicitly, I think, is is, is helpful. And every company is going to do it differently, right? Some companies are going to be very direct, very kind of in your face. Other companies want to do it more thoughtfully. Um, that's why I talked about, you know, as you know, in the book, I talk about um, different rock bands um, and how they all dealt with, you know, whether it's the Beatles or the Stones or R- REM, they dealt with their conflicts in, in, in different ways, um, but they're all successful uh, in, in their own way. So let's 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 stay on the Beatles then, because as, as I'm sure you're tired of talking about, 
you broke the internet last year when you wrote a piece called 64 Reasons to Celebrate Paul McCartney. Um, and, and for one of the most famous people in the world, what it seemed to me was like your view is he was almost misunderstood. Um, how is that possible that you could be one of the two lead members of the Beatles, uh, a cultural icon, um, and yet somehow you're both underappreciated and, and, and not properly understood? Yeah. Well, it's partly because he's still with us. Um, he didn't do us, you know, he didn't do the graceful thing and, and sort of bow out when he was, you know, 30 and never be heard of again. Um, and uh, perhaps we kind of undervalue at the geniuses that, that, that hang around too long. Um, but, but it's also a lot to do with the fact that um, the, the, the narrative of, of the Beatles was really set when they split up. Uh, in a way that still, you know, lingers with us decades later, um, because rock critics decided basically that Paul had broken the group up. I mean, and it was this sort of childish. It might have been dressed up in, in you know, fancy language, but basically it was like Paul split the group up. Um, therefore, we don't like Paul. Paul was the shallow, superficial one, and uh, John was the deep, creative, anti-establishment force. And John, of course, reinforced that myth in, in brilliantly in many interviews. Um, and Paul's reputation never really recovered from that. Actually, you know, he's anything but superficial. Um, he may be brilliant, at, well, he is brilliant at writing pop songs and, and he gives a very good interview. But there's, there's lots of depth and complexity to those songs and there's lots of depth and complexity to him. And perhaps we underestimate that. Yeah, and you're right. I think we just latch on to kind of one persona narrative. Like I remember, you know, reading Keith Richards' book and thought it was great and talking to someone about it. I said, oh, well, there's no way that he wrote that. You know, he's a heroin addict. I said, he's written like 20 of the best songs ever. Why, yeah. why is it so crazy to you that he would write a really good book? It seems extremely logical. But, you know, that wasn't yeah. the narrative of Keith Richards that this person had in their mind. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Even though it was kind of obvious. Um, I want to flip over to sports for a second, because as my listeners know, I talk about sports far too much. Uh, but you were writing about the, the failure of the Super League, and you gave some different reasons why it didn't happen. But, but one of the culprits that you identified I thought was interesting and surprising, um, which is Zoom. So, you know, I think Zoom has generally been extremely celebrated over the last 15 months or so. Um, t tell me why it was the cause of their downfall. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for, for those of our listeners who don't um, know what happened, basically, the, 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 a few of the biggest clubs, uh, soccer clubs in, in Europe, got together and said, we're going to do a breakaway league, kind of super national uh, uh, breakaway league. Um, and we're going to leave our domestic le leagues behind. And they made this announcement. That this is what is, and it's going to happen from next year. And the world went absolutely crazy, right? Everybody and everybody, every football fan and, and even governments got involved and said, don't you dare, don't you dare kind of tear up our domestic leagues. Um, there's no way you're going to do this. You don't have to know much about it to realize that they, and then they all had to back down humiliatingly um, and put off the prospect of this happening basically forever. So you don't have to know much about it to realize this is a stunningly bad piece of um, decision making and communication. And, and, and I was sort of wondering why, right? I mean, these guys are senior executives at pretty big businesses. Um, how could they have got this so sort of self-destructively wrong? And it did strike me that part of it is that all the conversations about it happened during lockdown when they weren't in the room with each other. And I think there's something, 
a little bit too abstract about Zoom conversations um, that can lead perhaps to a kind of form of slightly dreamy abstract um, thinking. So this Super League sounded good in theory, but there was no one saying, hang on a minute, when this actually hits the real world, all hell is going to break loose, right? Which was pretty, you know, foreseeable um, in advance. Um, so I don't know. I think there's something quite thin and sort of um, a little bit too intellectual about uh, Zoom discussions. Something about being in the room with each other. And this goes back to disagreement, of course, and, and conflict, where you can really get into stuff and, and you, and you kind of get a feel for what the other person's thinking and feeling in a way that I don't really think you do over a screen. So what I think yeah. about you know video is just it's a good substitute, but it's a, it's quite an inadequate substitute for 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 real face to face meetings. And, and it, as much as we might be distracted in in person meetings and either sneaking glances at our phone or wondering what's on our phone, you know it, it's still harder to do that just because of basic rules of of, of courtesy than right. as opposed to when when you're on when I'm on a Zoom, I'm also using my email and my text and three other things at the same time. And I'm kind of paying attention to the Zoom and I'm kind of paying attention yeah. to three other things. And, and, and as a result, um, maybe I'm missing details that, that were important uh, and, and you know, wouldn't have happened. That's a great point. Happened. Yeah, continuous partial attention. Yeah, it just becomes yeah. a, another form of, uh, you know, Twitter or, you know, gaming, whatever it is. It's just another kind of stream that we're, we're dealing with several of them at once instead of actually focusing on what the other guy's saying. Exactly. All right. Last question. And you said something in a newsletter. You're citing a study that I found slightly disturbing uh, because if it's true, it's, it's depressing. Um, people who reported being happiest are also not as high in cognitive functioning. Um, so that means the dumber you are, the happier you are? <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, or the other way around. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was interesting. I, I wouldn't, you know, put too much weight on it. It was just a kind of, uh, I think, a single study, although it looked like quite a good one. Um, and it was about how we how we change, how our cognitive function changes as we age. Um, and they said that one of the nice things about aging, apparently, um, is that we become better at managing our emotions, um, which makes sense to me, actually. Um, I think I quoted Tony Bennett in the piece. He said this lovely thing, which is life has a way of teaching you how to live it. Um, I always remember that. Um, and yeah, I, 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 and so so that explains, you know, some of the fact that happiness tends to increase as, as people come out of middle age and, and get older. But the other part of this is that part of the reason people become happier is that they, they, they're dealing with other people less, right? They kind of retreat a little bit from, from social life and, and then perhaps they retire and they see people less. Um, so they're less stressed out by the kind of the, the ordinary politics of dealing with with other people. Now that makes them happier, but apparently they also it, it, it is accompanied by decline in cognitive function. And this psychologist was, was arguing that those two things are possibly related. Um, that we need the kind of daily exercise of dealing with other people, even when they're difficult, right? Which I mean, I don't mean to bring everything back to my book, but this was a kind of theme of conflicted that, you know, conflicted arguments are a way of sharpening out our intelligence on the minds of other people. Um, we, we need that in order to stay sharp. If, when we don't have it, yeah, we, we could feel pretty good because we're not stressed out by things and we, we feel pretty happy. But actually, sort of un, unbeknownst to us, um, we're losing uh, some mental capacity. And how do you reconcile then the notion that less interaction means less stress with the whole loneliness epidemic um, and, and the notion that people are kind of too isolated right now and they need human contact to be happy. How, how do they, they seem conflicting? Yeah, well, I, I think this is it. I mean, like a lot of things, it's probably on an inverted U, U curve. 
um, uh, you want some level of stress in your life, right? The, the, the aim of life is not to be unstressed. Um, I, I think you come out the other side of that and you start to feel lonely, you know. Because, so, so it might feel good at first because you're not having to deal with people all the time. And if you're a little bit introverted, you can find that a little bit uncomfortable. But then you find after a while you're not dealing with people and therefore you're kind of moving into yourself and into your own thoughts um, and and you're kind of ruminating on things and, and actually that can get you down as well. So like so much about human psychology, um, it, it kind of it's paradoxical, it kind of goes both ways. There's some sort of happy medium for everyone where you have some level of stress, a little bit of social discomfort, but not too much. And it kind of um, it, it keeps you motoring along. I mean, I think Taleb's no, you know, notion of anti-fragilities is really kind of useful here. Um, what you want really are kind of series of small um, you know, s- stresses to, 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 to the system, which, which keep it strong and strengthen it, um, rather than um, no stresses at all, which leads it, leaves it vulnerable to, to, to you know, shocks and, and, and bad mental health impacts you know, like loneliness. Makes sense. Well, to our listeners, if you like this conversation, you're going to love the book. Uh, It's called Conflicted, How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Bradley, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too.